Welcome to the Georgia Fintech Academy podcast. The Georgia Fintech Academy is a collaboration between Georgia's fintech industry and the University System of Georgia. This talent development initiative addresses a massive demand for fintech professionals and gives learners the specialized education experiences needed to enter the fintech sector. Hi, everybody. This is Tommy Marshall, the executive director of the Georgia Fintech Academy. Welcome to season two, episode 14. We've got a really interesting show lined up for you today. We have Anita Ward, the chief development and diversity officer from Salary Finance, joining us along with Lily Sharples of the University of Georgia. Welcome. Lily and Anita. Hi, Tommy. Hey, to be here. Hi, guys. Um, Anita, before we jump into the meat of our discussion, um, could you take some time to just tell us about your career journey? Um, it, you've had such an impressive career. Continue to have do amazing things. Uh, tell our listeners about that. Sure. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks for uh, for asking me because I think your story, um, everybody's story, is really what informs uh, your life. And my story starts, my career story starts actually when I was a child. And I'm not sure you know this. I know we know each other pretty well, but I grew up a, a homeless child and and couch surfed um, with friends and family. Uh, my family uh, didn't have financial well-being. Really, didn't have a sense of financial literacy. And so we lived for the most part with friends and relatives. I I often joke with people when people talk about their home address. I say minus thirteen because I lived in thirteen places before I was sixteen, mm-hmm. and. Um, and I think that that really begins to inform um, both my psyche, my mindset, and my really my passion for how do you create inclusive financial services uh, products. Mm-hmm. So I, um, I I was really fortunate in that I went to the University of California. My parents landed us in Las Vegas of all places. So I'm an East Coast born and bred girl for those 13 locations. But uh, at some point, my dad threw all of us into a U-Haul and we drove across the country with $200 and lived in the Mojave Desert in the back of a U-Haul and uh-huh. until I got a job at McDonald's. And, and I share this, Tommy, because McDonald's really taught me how to understand um, finances, what it meant to be a, a financially empowered. And and at the same time, it was McDonald's on Maryland Parkway in Las Vegas, and it was a franchise owner. So I got a bit of entrepreneurism at the same time. Sure. And, and from there, um, I ended up, you know, I, I went to college. I was fortunate, went to California, went to UC Santa Barbara, and fell in love not with computer science, but with anthropology which really seems odd, but anthropology is really about people and, and cross-culturally, how do people behave? And so if you think about both currency and commerce and how that's shaped by the, the cultures of the organizations or the subcultures of the communities within which you're offering a product, 
and and how finance is the and how finance and economics are you know the backbone of that society mm-hmm. i embraced anthropology but what i didn't think about and lily listen to me carefully thank god you're in t- intact because what i didn't think about was when i left school what was i going to do with an anthropology degree there mm-hmm. wasn't a box on an org chart that said cultural anthropologist and 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 so I was really fortunate because the CIO of Occidental Petroleum um, interviewed me for an opportunity, and and hired me. And his logic was he knew nothing about people, and I knew nothing about computers. And for him, that was a marriage made in heaven because every strategy that he wanted to employ, every technology he wanted to deploy was really rooted in an understanding of people. So I would ask all of the questions that nobody on his team would ask because they'd be too embarrassed that uh, to admit that they may or may not know what that technology is. And in the process, what I realized was the power of tech to drive cultural change. And that if you could integrate geek speak with human speak, <laughs> that, that in fact, that, that is a powerful tool. Mm-hmm. Powerful tool in terms of mergers and acquisitions, in terms of efficiencies, in terms of new product development. But one without the other didn't have the same synergy as when you brought the two together. Mm-hmm. So I'm an accidental CIO. Um, I'm fortunate that I had a mentor early on who leaned in and and gave me that opportunity. But I went from oil and gas into insurance and banking. And uh, and what ended up at um, Chase through a series of acquisitions, and I was a CIO for all of the emergent technologies. Uh, I often joke is because nobody else wanted you know the ex- to experiment with those, but for me, I was delighted because the emergent technology was the future piece. Mm-hmm. So. How do you wrap your head around what should banking products of the future look like? And how do you deploy them? And how do you think about them from a cultural perspective? So not just what's the technology architecture and how sexy is that, but really what are you trying to achieve from both the employee perspective and the customer perspective? And I recall one day, I share this because I think it's an important thing for FinTech to keep in mind. but Herb Kelleher, the founder of um, Southwest Airlines, was on our board. Mm-hmm. And I was going through a passionate speech, as you might suspect, around all these great new technologies we had developed. And we looked at it from the customer perspective and how exciting it was and looking at that journey. And Herb said to me, Anita, that's lovely, but you really can't have a satisfied customer without a satisfied employee. So what are you doing with technology to focus on your internal culture as much as you are your external culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in many ways, he was asking us to, you know, eat the food we cooked and uh, rather than just roll it out to a marketplace. Um, and, And so for me, that's really where I became a CIO. That's really where my love and passion for technology came about. Um, I did a stint in the in the um, healthcare world with the Cleveland Clinic and built technologies for brain health and for the Neurological Institute, which was also really interesting and exciting. But I ended up there because both my parents were ill and I had to move back to Las Vegas to take care of them. And the clinic and the Cleveland Clinic happens to be in Las Vegas. 
Um, and everything in my life, Tommy, seems to be accidental. So I don't know, somebody might argue that, you know, there's, there's, it's nothing's accidental, right? But, uh, but um, I, I lost both my parents, sadly, but my son took on this great career in entertainment and we needed to be in Los Angeles. So I reached out to friends. Somebody was on the board of an organization called Operation Hope. And he said, I really think that you could get passionate around what Operation Hope does. Mm-hmm. So I moved to L.A. as the chief transformation officer initially for Operation Hope. Mm-hmm. Um, Hope is a financial um, coaching and education organization. It's a nonprofit and designed to uplift financially the individuals who are living in underserved communities. So it fit right in with my anthropological side, fit in with my technology side. Ultimately, uh I ended up in Atlanta as president of Operation Hope, and um, we built that organization from what was nine locations at the time that I joined, and in four years, we grew it to about 170, and so uh, that that transformational piece of using technology to help uplift uh, the unbanked, the underserved, the most marginalized of our communities is what I'm most passionate about, but Coaching can only take you so far. Education can only take you so far, and you need the tools. I met the salary finance team about a year and a half ago and thought, these guys can help me carry that forward and really uh, provide tools and technologies that a, a nonprofit certainly doesn't have at their disposal. And I joined about a year and a half ago as chief development officer. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and, and again, a bit accidental, I met them at the Hope Global Forum. So, you know, life is a series of choices and accidents and pathways to a, a future that you may not have ever anticipated. Mm-hmm. I love that. It's such a great story. This this fintech industry is so lucky to have you. And, Thank you. Uh, it's uh, it's just been exciting for me to, to know you. Um, and I... Um, I look forward to how things continue to evolve um, with with salary finance. And I know there's just been there's been key things like I think of um, as Operation Hope was kind of growing and succeeding. I know like Chase played an important role and there was that relationship or continues to be that relationship where where Chase, I guess, provides a forum, a place for the coaching to be executed or engaged on between the communities and the um, and the and the and the experts um, and um, there's all these I'm, I'm sure multiple key connective pieces you brought to bear uh, to helping people improve their financial lives. Yeah, it's most of the money center banks, Tommy. So mm-hmm. the model is called Hope Inside, and the banks actually provide the space to an Operation Hope coach. Mm -hmm. And uh, then individuals from the community or individuals from their own organizations come and get free counseling and free education uh, to support that. And um, I also believe that Hope has introduced a digital platform. So if you can't get to a location in -hmm. response to COVID, then you can actually, you know, FaceTime a coach, which is pretty great. Uh, But it gives access to resources that, you know, historically are, are the resources that you or you might have had or somebody else may have had through like wealth 
or private banking in a bank. This right. really takes it and creates a private bank for the poor. Mm-hmm. I love that. It's such an exciting um, concept and uh, and one that just demonstrates, I mean, I guess back to the anthropological uh, comments, like there's there's so many um, exciting possibilities that are that are possible today with um, the technology we have before us at lower at lower price points, I guess, or lower cost. That uh, and then of course the mobile phone has helped the opportunity uh, even even further with its um, what it unlocks in terms of possibilities for advice and guidance um, to really almost all people. Um, a lot. It's almost yeah. like the possibilities are endless. Uh, it seems uh, it's just uh, we're only limited by our creativity. It, it almost seems today in so many ways. Yeah. It certainly provides accessibility and inclusion. Mm-hmm. So if you think about the ubiquity of a smartphone, it's much more pervasive than the technologies I certainly had to play with you know, as, as CIO for many years, it's, uh, it, and everybody's a creator in this world. So, uh, it, you know, students create, we all create content is, is not to sound so cliche, but so much of this has been democratized where it used to be really consolidated and centralized in the hands of larger organizations. The access to technology and access to a developer's kit is is broadly available. So there is no limit, as you say, uh, other than your own imagination. Even education for technology has in many ways become open sourced. Mm-hmm. So this idea of, I believe, now I'm going to really sound like an anthropologist, but I believe this idea of open source technology really aligns nicely with open source cultures, if you were, will. But you're able to create groups, you're be able to create communities, organizations evolve, the technology evolves, and this contribution, your currency to play is your contribution back to open source, whether that's data or code or ideas. So I, I think the ethnography for an anthropologist now is really quite different from what it was with Margaret Mead when she was looking, you know, at the Samoans. Right. <laughs> now the ethnography, digital ethnography, is really quite exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Um, well, let's get come back to. I want to come back to salary finance in a minute, but li- Lily, tell us about you. Of course. So my name is Lily Sharples. And as you mentioned earlier, I'm a rising junior at the University of Georgia. And um, thank you for sharing your story, Anita. Mine's going to be a little bit different. So I actually grew up in Silicon Valley, California. My dad worked in tech. I had zero interest in computers until my senior year of high school. I wanted to be a vet. Um, I was going to be a horse vet, dead set on it. And then my senior year of high school, my dad, he made me take one coding class. And I took one coding class and I was kind of like, okay, I actually kind of enjoy this. I'm kind of good at this. So changed my entire path, decided to come be a computer science major. So now I'm studying computer science and I'm going to get my master's in artificial intelligence. So very different than becoming a vet. And um, recently in the past year, I've also got into financial technology. So I, because I wanted to be a vet, I kind of thought, what if I can find an intersection of being a vet and doing technology or like kind of biomedical technology? So that was my first plan, being a computer science major. 
And then I discovered um, UGA's our Terry College of Business School. We have a Terry FinTech Society. And I joined that and I thought, wow, this is kind of cool. I really enjoy all the all the data and everything working around with finance and banks and technology. You know, there's so much technology in finance, as we all know, in banks. Every day you use some kind of financial technology. So I'm actually now the vice president of Terry FinTech Society. And we work pretty closely with, um, with Tommy and the Georgia FinTech Academy, hence why I'm here. But yeah, that's a little bit about me. I'm very interested in financial technology now. I'm actually working for IBM this summer as a development operations engineer. So looking forward to building more of those um, technological skills that I can then carry forward into the, the field of financial technology in my future. Lily, that's so exciting. I have to tell you, when I first entered the tech world, there were very few women um, and so the idea that more and more um, all of us have begun to em- embrace technology and you clearly can't go wrong, you know, studying AI right now, everything that that we're doing in terms of infrastructure and artificial intelligence, I, I think is um, is so important. So it's certainly cross industry. So congratulations on thinking that through. Although I, I think being a vet is also wonderful. <laughs> Maybe you can create those little virtual pets for us or a virtual, you know, something for us. (laughs) Uh, uh, I'm excited to tell you both that we recently um, pulled the um, gender and race ethnicity data on the fintech students we have system wide. And we found that uh, 34% of the students engaging with our fintech program are women. Um, and of course, we're wow. not done yet. We want to be at parity. Um, That's great, though, Tony. I was very encouraged by, yeah, I was really encouraged by the the thirty four percent. And we've had um, so many women like you, Lily, that are kind of stepping up in like leadership roles with the with the fintech society. What you're doing at UGA, but at, at several of the other schools that we engage with, and um, it's uh, it's just been. It's just been wonderful, and it's so um, exciting to me and to this program, and to the industry. <laughs> right? I mean, the uh, the in- different industry um, corporates and otherwise that are engaging with us and really coming to the fintech academy as a source of talent um, have just been effusive in their comments around um, the diversity profile from both the gender um, and racial ethnicity standpoint. I guess on that front, 71% of the students are from underrepresented groups. Um, and that's also, been, yeah, I don't, there's, there's nothing like it in the, in the U.S. for the fin, fin, financial services technology industry. Yeah. Congratulations on that's a huge success. And, you know, I'm, now Atlanta's my home, so forget about that number 13. I'm, I'm here uh, to stay, but uh, I also know that Silicon Valley has, you know, such a, such a problem when it comes to um, yeah. diversity, equity, and inclusion. So in some ways, while I don't want to lose students from Atlanta because we have plenty of, of tech opportunities, it's also potentially a pathway for us to help you know, the, the, the valley that where, you know, That's the right. genesis of technology took place. So, and I can't, um, I can't name names yet, Anita, but I can tell you, um, some, some big names from that part of the world have been, uh, knocking 
on my door a lot (laughs) lately. And we've got a lot of exciting conversations underway that I'm hoping to bring to fruition um, so that we can uh, just demonstrate further um, our engagement with that part of the industry. Uh, Or that, And, you know, we've been seeing more of those big tech names making investments right here. I was going to say they're here now in Atlanta. Yeah, and that certainly um, has helped. Um, Anita, tell us about salary finance. Salary finance is uh, it's amazing, so first of all. But salary finance was born in the UK in 2015. Um, the founders, Dan Cobley was the, the head of Google Europe. Uh, mm-hmm. Daniel Shikani is a social philanthropist. And Asesh Sarkar uh, are the three founders. And Asesh was, I think, at some point, the youngest um, consulting partner at PA Consulting. But they recognized an opportunity in the marketplace uh, where um, individuals who were precluded from really participating in both the capital markets and and having access to capital when they needed it, um, didn't it wasn't there. So they built technology that used that was built on the thesis that if you had a salary link and you used a salary link as your secret sauce in this architecture that you could underwrite loans differently. And the salary link would allow you to take a deduction on or or take a payment through a deduction from your salary. Uh, And it would allow salary finance then to suppress interest rates. But more importantly, it would allow them to be inclusive. So when I talked about the marginalized communities that we helped at Operation Hope, if there was a salary link, very different from traditional banking, we can underwrite, you know, uh, subprime loans. And Mm -hmm. in fact, the entire company was built on the premise that we would offer financial services to um, individuals, but we would scale it through their employer. So, uh, you know, I talked about our 168 locations at Hope. Nothing scales faster than getting big employers on board and leaning in. So if we could offer financial services through an employer, then, in fact, um, we felt like we could more, much more quickly and much more broadly impact lives. We are founded as a social purpose organization. We are members of conscious capitalism and Mm -hmm. our value systems drive everything that we do. Every hire we make, every um, product we build, every, every marketplace opportunity, we're matching up values first and making sure that people are aligned around social purpose. So for us, the social purpose is to get millions of, in in our case, now I'm selfishly talking about the U.S., but millions of working Americans, millions of employees from a position of struggling to a position of prospering. Uh, we, we like to talk about it in terms of moving individuals along the financial continuum. There are basically five products that sit within the financial well-being platform. And oh, by the way, Tommy, we don't charge an employer and we don't charge an employee. So our social purpose, first and foremost, said this is an employee benefit with no charges. So if you really want to break down obstacles to um, for the unbanked and obstacles to individuals who don't trust a banking system and don't have financial services, you remove all the fees. 
mm-hmm. um, <laughs> which really goes against everything I used to build in banking, by the way. Right. And so <laughs> well, these the, are important. <laughs> so the month, the revenue that's made is made on interest income. Yeah. So that, we yeah. yeah. So we offer a learning platform for free. You can measure and assess your financial well-being both as an organization and as an individual. So mm-hmm. you can track your financial fitness score. And then all of the tools and curriculum are lined up and indexed by where you are in your financial journey. So if you're struggling, there's no reason for me to present to you Fidelity's stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I need to present to you information that's going to get you from struggling to coping. So all of the tools, all the platform is indexed along this financial well-being continuum that's rooted in our data. I'm a a big data person, a bit of a geek, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. So um, in addition to a learning platform, we have a borrowing platform that is completely inclusive, as I said. So an individual can apply for a loan with salary finance. We underwrite it not using FICO score. We underwrite it based upon tenure. So mm-hmm. we believe that stability, if you will, tenure with an organization is a much better indicator of ability to repay a loan. Mm-hmm. So we're underwriting it based on that. And then we capped our interest rates. So we oh. don't have a single interest rate higher than 19.9%. Wow. We think anything beyond that is predatory. I don't care if you have a 500 credit score. You're never going to see anything above 19.9 with salary finance. So, uh, and then additionally, we know we don't do everything. So, um, for example, we know we don't do financial coaching, but we know there are lots of great organizations like Operation Hope that do. So, we have a database and a process that we call Get Help. So, an employee can go onto our platform, search for a coach, find a coach, um, could, in fact, maybe even search, maybe they're struggling, maybe they have a pre foreclosure process in place. We have uh, 40,000 people vetted, or 40,000 organizations vetted in our database, all of which provide their services for free to fill in any gaps that we might have in our process. And then lastly, Tommy and Lily, you're going to hear some news from me today that we haven't even done the press release on. So um, this is this is just for you, Tommy, right now. Uh, and I'm excited to announce it here first. Georgia but FinTech we, Academy exclusive. Georgia FinTech Academy exclusive. In the next um, two weeks, maybe next week, but in the next two weeks, we're announcing a SAVE program. And we are incentivizing that SAVE program with cash incentives from salary finance. So we want to encourage employees to save. We are we are really struck by that CFPB um, fact that, what, 48% of Americans don't have $400 in savings and right. COVID made it worse and mu- made it much worse for the BIPOC community. But um So we are effectively leaning in with cash that equates to a 10% uh, interest rate on a saving account. It's going to be a digital account. So for every $100 you save, salary finance is giving you 10. And we believe, yeah, there's nothing. There's Right now, like the best savings rate even a wealthy person can get right now is 1%, maybe. Yeah. 
Maybe. Yeah, maybe. And that might be with your Goldman Marcus account, right? Right. Actually, Goldman Marcus is only doing 50 basis points. So Mm -hmm. I don't even think anybody's at 100 basis points, but most of the big banks are at a 0.1%. So they're at 10 basis points. We're saying we're going to effectively give you 10%. And uh, and we're going to set it up with also what we think of as kind of a spending account. So we know people have to spend and we know the two go hand in hand. But the spending account's also going to have a roll up feature in it so that you can um, save when you spend. So if you spent $10.20 at Starbucks and you want to roll up those extra 80 cents into your savings, you'll be surprised how quickly that accumulates. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, on the saving account, we were on the spending and saving account, we removed all fees. So there are no fees. And if you're on your saving account, you went to Starbucks, but your check didn't hit right away. Um, we have free overdraft protection. And so we're offering that. So again, we're trying to get to the unbanked who end up paying all those overdraft fees who really are terrified about participating. We've removed those obstacles. We've made it super easy and we're rewarding people with a cash incentive to sign up for it. And we believe that this initiative is going to start to close the financial divide, particularly as it relates to savings. So now we've attacked it from the financial divide from the borrowing side because we're not using FICO to make a lending decision. And now we've, and from the saving side, because we're not using FICO, do you know, Tommy, in many times the, you know, the, to get an account, even a savings account, a bank is running a credit check. And we're right. and the people who really need it may have a 500 credit score. So right. we've eliminated all of those pieces. We've eliminated the, the, the um, check system. So we're not even asking if you've had problems with another bank, we're still going to help you open right. your account because we know you're de- you need the help. So we've put all of this together into what we call a financial well-being platform, offering it into um, employers for free. So you can learn, you can access emergency resources, you can build your savings, you can access affordable capital. And um, and we've grouped that together into what we think is, uh, is driven, well, we know it's driven by social purpose because we want to help people, but it's all rooted in the tenets of conscious capitalism. And, and as importantly, it's, it's free. Mm-hmm. So our our business model, as you started to speak to, Tommy, is really our cost of funds and our average interest rate. And we believe that as our loan portfolio grows, then, um, you know, so will our margins. So we're we're uh, we'll be doing well by doing good at the end of the day. And I and oh, we service our own loans too, Tommy. So wow, okay. That's um that's really important because that lets us do things like Tesla's a big customer of ours. We have four and a half million um uh, people using our platform and about six hundred employers. But Tesla is one of our um larger clients in the US and you know they had to furlough people during COVID. Yeah. But what we did was we put them on payment holidays. We said go buy your groceries, don't worry about your loans. You can do that when you service the loan. So Lily, you'll love it because we have, you know, unique underwriting and unique AI that sits in the background of how we underwrite alone um, and how we build into those algorithms the, you know, 
sociocultural factors, including, um, you know, behavioral economic uh, factors, and and in many ways, uh, the cultural pieces. So I'm still an anthropologist, but with a little bit of, of data and a whole lot of technology, we've created this, this what we think is an effective driver of change, social change yeah, in, in our fintech. Yeah, thank you, Nita. I did have one question. So I know you mentioned you're working with companies like Tesla. So are you is your platform, are you mainly reaching out to companies to attract their employers or are you working with individuals or can people reach out to you to use your platform? Yeah, it's a B2B model. So uh, we're basically working within employers. So um, if you're an employee of Tesla, we'll stick with Tesla. Who doesn't love Elon, right? Um, I, I would have to get to an argument with you if you said otherwise. Yeah. But um, <laughs> we're, not, we're not going on the Elon Musk tangent. We're going to stay away from that. Today. I know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> One other day, tell me. Yeah, um, but if you but if you work for uh, Tesla, then um, this is a it's it's considered like a voluntary benefit in an organization. So you have it available to you as an employee benefit. Okay, awesome. That's super cool to hear. Thanks. I'm just I'm just curious to hear your questions, Lily. As you're as you as you're just getting introduced here to salary finance, um, e- either from a kind of business perspective or a technology perspective. Yeah, and again, I like how you're saying um, that you guys are using a lot of artificial intelligence kind of in the background of that. It definitely shows that there's, I'm sure you have lots of, you know, you already have your one ID, you just announced lots of things moving forward. I'm sure you're going to be able to keep incorporating all this new modern technology into that. Yeah, it's interesting, Lily. One of the things we've been looking at lately is we do integration with payroll systems, for example, for um, the salary deduction. But there's lots of new emergent technology like Argyle uh, and, and and Plaid that may, in fact, facilitate that integration and, and make it so we don't have to do it. So we are we continue to look at other technology partners as they're growing. Um, we have uh, we have obviously our own IP, but it but partnerships, I think, in the world of fintech are critical uh, because somebody is going to do that middleware and that integration or validation or verification, all of that in that one pot. That's where they're going to specialize. So rather than us trying to build it, it may in many ways make sense to look at an Argyle, for example, for validation or verification. Um, we have integration with um, payroll systems. So mm-hmm. if you, you know, you think about that deduction, the last thing HR wants to do is have to manually, you know, input, right. you know, <laughs> Lily Sharples, $20 this week to salary finance. So we've, we've built the integration pieces as well, which I think um, from an IT perspective, all of you might find interesting um, because each payroll system obviously has its own set of specs. Yeah. And, uh, and so there's a, a lot that happens in the background in order to deliver our social purpose and all of that's tech. So it kind of circles back to where I started with my story, right? I fell in love with technology, not just because I think, you know, uh, databases are the coolest thing ever, but I, I fell in love with it because I think it can make a difference in society. And yeah. that's where I stay focused. Where you were mentioning earlier about how everything's kind of open source. I know you're saying you have all these kind of other platforms. You're like, why don't, why would we do it ourselves if we have these platforms already available to us? So I yeah. definitely know you're saying it kind of all comes full circle about everything can be open source for the, for the common good. Yeah. At the end of the day, I always said as a CIO, my, my best friend was my chief architect. Mm. Right. So 
because that individual could help me figure out what does the integration look like? What should the architecture be? What are our options in that structure? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I always kept them close. Well, Lily's now a DevOps engineer, so uh, she wants DevOps engineers to be also your best friends. Oh, of course, Sarah. We can't. Well, the architect and I can't get it done without without uh, experts like Lily. <laughs> the um, the other thing I just wanted to touch on for a minute, Anita, before we head to the news wrap up, was is. Um, the, the report that you all just released, um, the, the third annual salary finance inside the wallets of working Americans. Um, can you just give us a few headlines of what you learned uh, from absolutely. this year's report? Yes, it's a, it's a longitudinal study. This is our, our third year of looking at um, what they, or what individuals are going through in terms of financial stress. And um, I'm happy to share it with anybody, Tommy. So I'll give you a link. And if you want to have the link on your podcast, and yeah, we'll do that. I'm happy to share that with um, individuals. And then again, back to my open source. If anybody on this call wants to actually work with the data, just please reach out to me. And uh, we're willing to make the raw data available as well for other people who are doing research. Whoa, you had, uh, that's a, okay, I'll definitely be reaching out to you on that. You should call me with the university, yeah. Yeah, because we've got, with the Georgia State in particular, their Masters of Finance um, professors, uh, Bao Zongyang and and Rasha Ashraf, they've been kind of knocking on my door every day, like, Tommy, we need more data sets. Oh, I can help you, yes, I can help you. Uh, We have, we asked 178 questions, Tommy, and as you know, this report's only about 30 pages long, so we clearly have much more data than we've actually reported on. Um, but we look uh, at um, financial stress, and this these are from 2020, so you'll see how people were feeling in 2020 in the midst of a pandemic. But um, more than half of working Americans um, are financially stressed. And 67% of, of everybody who's employed uh, doesn't have money set aside for an emergency which really that number is so compelling because we thought we need to drive a savings product. And that's the data that led us to really addressing savings. People don't have um, emergency funds set aside. And when you see a 67%, that's incredible. But some other things that we saw pop out that we hadn't really thought about was that as a result of COVID, 40% of, um, of employees are financially supporting family members. Mm-hmm. So I know that now the jobs market is picking back up, but this was an expense that nobody anticipated, eight or nine months of supporting friends and family, yeah. uh, and 40% of us were doing that. So the the numbers there, when you start to, to look at them, are pretty, I think, pretty compelling, particularly um, there, if in fact, what we saw was that if in fact people were out of work for a longer period of time, or for actually for even a short period of time, 53% couldn't pay their basic expenses. Mm-hmm. 53%. Yeah, so if, uh, if, if a financial shock hits or somebody loses their job, 53% of them couldn't pay their expenses. Mm-hmm. And then the other one that we really don't keep eyes on is how much 401k borrowing there was last year. Yeah. So another, I know I think it's 49 or 50% say that they're going to use up all the retirement money before they retire. Mm-hmm. And so if you, you have all of this struggling going on, the data is showing us that 
many of us are not prepared for the next financial shock. And then what we did was we flipped a diversity, uh, uh, equity and inclusion lens and said, what does this look like for, um, for women in the BIPOC community? And, mm -hmm. and do you know that 25% of that group left their jobs to be full-time caregivers last year? So now you're talking about reentry. You're talking about financial impact. Um, and uh, fifty-seven percent of Latin ex-employees have less than two months of expenses saved. Fifty-five percent of African American employees uh, are the same way, and about forty-three percent of women. So you combine all this together, and you know you've got systemic issues going into 2020. And those systemic issues of wealth and income disparities, and then you layer on this level of financial stress. Um, I, I think what's going to happen is we. I, I think it's a tale of two wallets, right? Not just one wallet. And we've got to look at both of those wallets and segment that data, particularly because Tommy, what people aren't thinking about is how many forbearances were in place in 2020. Right. Mortgage forbearances, rent, rent forbearances, student loan forbearances. That check is coming due. Right. That's all got to get turned back on. It's all getting turned back on. Be fulfilled. And there are 19 million Americans at risk of losing their home um, uh, once those forbearances are gone. Hmm. So uh, we are we are focused very much, uh, as I said, on the data and what is the data telling us. And this particular year, uh, it was it was pretty compelling. The other piece that we saw was, um, you know, credit score related because there is a big disparity in average credit scores, particularly when you look at it by race. And um, and the average credit score for African-Americans, for example, was 647. But the average credit scores for um, for white population was 734. So again, you're looking at systemic issues that we've got to address either through um, education, through these impairment tools, through tools like ours. Uh, if we, I didn't, I don't know that I mentioned it, but when you take out a salary linked loan, we we report to the bureaus, and your payments are on time because they come from your salary. So we're popping credit scores by forty three points quickly. Yeah, and that's, that's a lot of economic leverage right there. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's, I have lots of data around this. I won't, I won't, you know, um, bore you with all of the numbers, but um, I will say that, you know, uh, many people, 76% don't have access to affordable credit. And I'll just leave you with that one giant statistic um, out of the data that says we're driving those individuals to predatory lenders. We're driving to predatory sources. And uh, and while I understand that people need access to capital, we as fintechs have to step up and, and fill that gap so that uh, the people who are most vulnerable are not paying three and 400% on a small dollar loan. So I, I, you know, yeah, I, I, I think you'll find the data. I think you'll find the data both compelling and interesting. Yeah, yeah no, really puts it in perspective. Yeah, thank you for sharing. That's crazy to hear those those numbers. It's crazy, Lily. It's scary. Crazy, scary. Yeah. yeah.
Um, but then, you know, to have a, a capability being offered by a firm like Salary Finance and to hear that you're capping interest rates on APRs, annual percentage rate is at 19 percent capping. I mean, capping. that means uh, there's probably a, a, a very reasonable average APR that's accessible to a, a big yeah. kind of part of your underwriting curve. Yes. Um, that that's even lower and much more even manageable. Um, yep. Not. And I mean, if you think, uh, well, you're right, Tommy. Though, because if you think about it, the most, the the neediest individuals are coming to us first, right, for the loans, and then the high income employees. Do you know that 28 percent of people who make 168 thousand dollars a year live paycheck to paycheck? Yeah. How's that for a statistic? Right. But so, you know, we our, our average interest rate hovers somewhere between 11 and 13 percent. And that's still recognizing that so many of our borrowers are subprime, that that average should be, you know, I think much higher. But in our case, we keep it down because we know that that's an important part of the community we're serving back to that social purpose. Well, thank you all for doing this study. Um, it's it's valuable. And you mentioned it's longitudinal. I mean, this will continue yeah. to go on. You'll continue to give the snapshots. Um, these studies are really important. They, I, I, and then I think your study can be taken with um, some similar type studies that are, are conducted um, like by, with the Federal Reserve, for instance, um, to help, you know, all of us better understand in greater detail um, the urgency um of really addressing these um, these this savings problem, lending problem systemically um, uh, for many different populations uh, broadly. Um, let's our, our listeners know that we like to wrap up with like fintech news of the week. So uh, maybe we we should probably head there quickly. Um, Lily, what what caught your attention this week in the fin- world of fintech? Sure. So over the last year, I've become pretty interested in cryptocurrency. Yeah. So <laughs> over the last week, um, some news regarding the possibility of a, of a United States digital currency. So basically, the Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell announced that sometime this summer they're going to be releasing a paper regarding their thoughts, namely, you know, the benefits and the risks of creating a United States central bank digital currency. So that'll be something to look for, like look out for this summer, seeing what they think. Um, their risks and benefits are and, you know, weighing those, seeing what possibilities they can come up with that. Yeah, I was uh, I was excited to hear that news from um, Chairman Powell and and I I can't wait to get my hands on that report and see what they're thinking. Um, we're seeing more more central banks around the world. I mean, have, you know, say they're saying directly they're and they're starting to launch currencies. Um, in fact, we just lined up um, the Bahamas, the, the Central Bank of the Bahamas. I can't say the word very well, but they're they're going to come on uh, and do a student event with us with the FinTech wow. Academy in the fall. Oh, and awesome. I've. And I'm looking forward to um, hearing directly from them. They've been um, taking some, um, you know, initial steps from a central bank standpoint. Um, Anita, how about you? What anything caught your attention? Yeah, and you'll probably think, oh, Anita, you're, you're, it's been my soapbox through this conversation with you today. But Wells Fargo announced yeah. its initiative. I don't know if you saw it, but it's around the unbanked 
and support for the unbanked. And they have put together this this very broad-based initiative mm -hmm. to focus on digital banking, financial guidance, affordable products, all in um all with a focus on unbanked communities. So uh, I love the idea that they're um, that they're collaborating and they're taking their bank on coalitions. I think Operation Hope is involved. Yeah. Um, FinTechs are involved. So this idea that together we're stronger, uh, I think is a critical part of that. And you know, kudos to Wells Fargo for focusing on creating financial uh, a financial ecosystem for the unbanked. Yeah. I love it. Go stagecoach. Um, yeah. The, yeah. the one, um, the the one, I, I guess, piece I'd add is uh, there that caught my eye was the Fidelity, the uh, the investment manager um, announced a, a youth account um, that's available to customers now um, addressing 13 to 17 year olds. Um and I think this is just this is another like another big trend that we've got going on uh, in the marketplace that fintech is enabling is how to uh, improve financial literacy of young people, uh, and uh, that's of course important um, to helping young people learn how to save, how to invest. Mm -hmm. um, really closing the, uh, I guess what I'd call as an illiteracy gap <laughs> that exists when young people and empowering parents to, to help uh, educate young people in financial yeah. literacy. So, I, when I was 13, that would have been cool. Yeah, yeah okay. no kidding. I would uh, say keep an eye on Motley Fool. I don't, I, I'm yeah. not an insider, but you have to believe that, that Tom and David have that, that, uh, you know, that in their sites is too. Yeah, and then I'm always happy to. Um, I can't even talk about this topic without bringing up Greenlight Financial, our local yeah. Atlanta, you know, yep. fintech double unicorn now. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and they they all they launched uh, an investment account for kids um, back. Um, gosh, I'll, I think well over six or nine months ago now that. Yeah. Um, that I believe has been going very well um, in its delivery. I know I've got my kids on that. That's that's my one of choice. I've got my kids on uh, in those accounts. Um, well, great. Well, Anita, just thank you so much for being here as part of this podcast. Thanks for being part or engaging with the Georgia FinTech Academy. You are always welcome. Thank you. Uh, Lily, um, so great to have you here. Thanks for the leadership you provide to not just the ten Terry Fintech Society, but also to the Georgia Fintech Academy. I'm, I'm so glad that you're a junior. <laughs> We've had some great leaders that are seniors that have now graduated. Um, so it's just, uh, it's important to have um, juniors, sophomores, freshmen, of course, engaging with us. Um, we rely on you to deliver what we do uh, on all the different campuses. So uh, thanks for being with us and best of luck with your internship. Is that the Georgia Fintech Academy podcasts are available on on iTunes and Spotify. To obtain additional information about the Georgia Fintech Academy, please visit our website at georgiafintechacademy.org.